I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to episode 21 of the Create More podcast with me, Ben Stewart. Um, This is a sneaky between podcasts. Um, This, uh, why why am I uh, not issuing this every two weeks and why am I doing it between podcasts? Well... This podcast is all about Brexit and the reason for doing that and the reason I'm doing a slightly politically based uh, podcast is uh, normally I take a curveball away from politics, uh, but uh, two reasons. One, uh, I feel that while the Create More podcast is all based about uh, creative industries, um, everything seems to be uh, kind of focusing on uh, the Brexit or Remain uh, campaign and uh, do, do you know what for the first time ever uh, well since the last election really but the, everyone seems to be talking about Brexit or Remain a lot everyone is do you know what really kind of I've been having pub chats uh, a lot about it recently and I've found that everyone kind of Everyone, I feel like, has a justified say. Um, uh, that shouldn't sound weird, but what I like is that this kind of seems party agnostic. It doesn't doesn't seem like it's a Labour or a Conservative thing. It seems more open than that. And what's been really nice is, um, uh, I you know, I still haven't made a decision either way. I'm still trying to like weigh up uh, how I feel. Um, and I feel that every time I talk to someone. You know, I, I kind of see it in a different take, and uh, I, yeah, I guess I'm a little bit confused. Uh, I don't, I don't really know who, who to listen to. Uh, I guess you know, at the end of the day, I want to make my own decision, uh, but at, at some point, you know, you have to believe in uh, in in who's uh, kind of who's giving you that information. So, I thought, uh, as this is such a hot topic. Um, it would be really interesting to get someone to talk about uh, Brexit. And uh, uh, the second reason I've chosen uh, this podcast as a platform for that is because uh, one of the people, along with Michael Gove and Boris Johnson, heading up the Brexit uh, campaign is Gisela Stewart, who is a Labour MP. Um, and she is also my mum. So I thought, what fantastic access to someone on the inside. Um, uh, to give you a little bit of background, my mum's a Labour MP for Edgebaston, has has been since 1997, and has also kind of done all sorts of other things around being an MP. She's um, been on the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, she's been on the Defence Committee, Private and Injunctions Joint Committee, and she's now on the Intelligence and Security Committee of Parliament. Um so she's kind of seen a lot. Um, she's also kind of German and moved to uh, the UK in 90, sorry, when she was 18. So she's kind of seen lots of side of lots of things. And she also 
um, kind of helped write a document, which I can't remember the exact name of, but you'll have to listen to it in the podcast. Um, as like a, as a, as as a as a kind of pro-European document, uh, quite a while ago, back in two thousand and three. And in doing so, kind of uh, saw the EU from the inside, and has since then kind of totally changed. It's kind of changed the way she's seen it. As um, so, she's kind of got quite a unique take, uh, a unique insight. Sorry, not unique take, unique insight into the whole, the structure of the EU and England's uh, UK's kind of. Um, involvement in the EU and um, you know while I'm sure people listening to this will assume that this is a heavily biased towards um, uh, leaving the EU and in, I'll be honest uh, again while I was doing the podcast um, you know she's very persuasive um, and I've seen lots of really kind of persuasive stuff about it um, uh, but in doing that and um, actually kind of umming and ahhing about how to do this intro and outro um, I've been talking to people at Make uh, friends um, and I've kind of given my opinion and they've given me a totally different uh, version of how, how they see it and I, do you know what I find it's really interesting I still I'm not you know, I'm not going to pretend like I have an answer and, you know, this podcast isn't designed to be, you know, like the answer, but I thought it'd be really interesting for you guys to hear, um, you know, quite an open and relaxed chat about what the EU is and, you know, kind of Gisela's kind of take on it as, as, as part of the Brexit campaign. And the reason I'm releasing it, um, today, uh, on Wednesday, the 18th is because on the 19th, um, Gisela's coming in to makes offices and she's actually taking part in a talk in we've invited clients and things over and uh laura sandys uh who's a conservative mp is uh, coming to do a talk from the remain camp um so, <clears throat> so they've kind of got these questions lined up and they're gonna do it for the whole office probably like 100 120 people or something and at the end they're gonna do uh, a vote like an internal poll <laughs> uh and they're gonna release results and um i do you know what? i'm really interested i mean i i just didn't whilst i feel obviously uh you know leaning towards one way um i feel i genuinely feel the other side has some fairly valid arguments as well and without knowing again this is my first introduction to this whole this whole thing and it you know it's it's quite a it's like an in-depth historical decision and one that I feel, you know, you know, you need to have all the information. So I really hope you enjoy this podcast. It's, it's, it's a short one this time. It's not a two and a half hour one. It's literally an hour. And, uh, you know, we try and go through as many things as possible. I try and, um, uh, try and ask as many questions that I feel that someone who had no idea about would want to know and also trying to go into a little more depth and things. Um, I'm sure people in the <coughs> Bromain camp will be, yelling at the podcast when certain things are said but <clears throat> I feel that you know ideally I get someone from the Bromain side as well um, uh, but uh, the, the, the intention is to make this a double parter so um, nearer the actual referendum get my mum on again um, because uh, the interesting thing is obviously I have 
the relationship with mum so you kind of get quite an interesting insight and a unique perspective for people who listen to this podcast so while I will you know try and make an effort to get someone from the Bromain side on I just can't think of anyone who would give me this kind of all open relaxed honest account um, uh, you know you're kind of playing at the very top game now and uh, I'm not a politician <laughs> and I'm genuinely asking questions from a, you know an open perspective so um, I would quite easily get steamrolled by anyone um, especially someone who knows that the reason they're coming on as the brain is because they're trying to counteract the Brexit side of a podcast with my mum who happens to be spearheading the whole campaign so yeah I'll stop waffling and I really hope you enjoy it and uh, even if you don't agree with everything she said I hope you agree that it's uh, it's interesting to hear her side of the kind of her side of the um, the argument so thanks for listening and listening to the end uh, to see if I decide to make a decision um, enjoy Nice. How do you feel? Do you feel comfortable? Good. good, good. I didn't. Uh, I didn't tell you that. Uh, did I tell you that you and Caroline were the reason I did the podcast? No. Mm. So when we're in South Africa, uh, I was thinking about doing the podcast, and I was like, uh, "But what if I can't control a conversation?" And I was like, "You two are downstairs having a very, very intense conversation about the election." So I got a podcasting app on my phone and I slid it into the middle of the table and I kind of sat between you guys, and then literally just asked you and Caroline questions for like 45 minutes and I don't know if you're aware anyway so I was controlling the conversation and then I got my phone and walked off and I was like well I can get you two to have a serious conversation with me and you don't think I'm an idiot you recorded us without telling us I, I deleted it straight away yeah yeah you that... just committed a crime okay we're gonna lock you up now. is it a crime it is now is it <laughs> <laughs> well okay so obviously you're on the pocket we started now I don't really have an introduction uh so the Brexit uh, campaign is something that's been slowly building uh, in momentum, obviously, but in my office as well, people are becoming more and more interested in it. And uh, there's a lot of, I don't feel, I don't misinformation, but I, we got a pamphlet through, everyone did, uh, which felt a bit propagandary in my eyes. Anyway, so the reason I wanted to do the podcast, because there's lots of people, we're coming up to 10,000 downloads. So, you know, we've got a decent amount of people on the podcast now. And uh, it could I make a difference. Yeah. 10,000 people voting to leave could make all the difference. Thank you. Wow. Yeah. Okay, listeners, there you go. No, no pressure. Uh, so what I was thinking was, um, I didn't want to get into the kind of the bigger questions until the end, but I, I did just want to kind of give people an explanation of what what the eu is why it started in the first place almost like a history lesson assume i'm the layman mother i know that will be very difficult for, for you to imagine obviously but tr treat me as if i know nothing <laughs> <laughs> and then if uh so hopefully over the next 45 minutes to an hour depending on your patience um we can go through why the eu exists why it was important and why you feel maybe our interaction with the eu isn't as important now uh, and I will ask you lots of very basic questions and you just need to explain very slowly, <laughs> very clearly to me. So if you, if you start from the very beginning and then we'll work into how you integrated into the EU and then your position at the moment, but what, what, like very, at the very base, why did it exist? What is it? And you need to know what it is, even though what you're being asked about is to make a judgment about the future of it. But mm. unless you know 
its history and why it started to exist, I think you will find it difficult to arrive at a decision about where it should go. So if you go back, literally back, not just to the last century, but the one before, end of the 19th century, uh, Prussia and France went big to war and Prussia spectacularly beat the French. Uh, 1914, World War I. Um, then you had World War II. And I think in years to come, uh, people will see the period between 1914 and 1945 as a continuous war, which simply had uh, some years of peace in the middle. But the causes of this mm. were over a period of 100 years, uh, Germany and France going to war with horrendous consequences, not just for Germany and France, but for the rest of Europe and the rest of the world. Right. So 1945, um, you started to get to a position where people started thinking, we've really got to put an end to this. And in 1957, uh, six countries came together and the six were Germany and France, mm -hmm. uh, Italy and the Benelux countries, uh, Belgium, Luxembourg and the Netherlands. And they formed something called the common market. And what they wanted to do was say, if we start to trade with each other much more, if we deal on coal and steel, which if you talk about the powers of war making and industry, coal and steel are the two commodities you really have to deal with. And they said, if we can closely integrate in such a way that Germany and France will never go to war again, mm. then we can settle a peace. And that was an extraordinary forward-looking way of going about things. At the same time, you had something called the economic free trade area, where uh, Britain, the United Kingdom, was a leading country, where the countries traded with each other. Mm. So you got to the point of 1973, where in the whole continent of Europe, you had two ways in which countries related to each other. They either just did it about trade, yeah. which was the free trade area, EFTA, or you had the common market, which whilst they traded, also had the free movement of people, which was a political integration model. And then when the United Kingdom joined in 1973, in a sense, every other small country was deprived of the choice how to relate to its neighbours. Well, why why did why did the UK join in the first place then? That's a that's a very good question because you see the other thing was that why did all the other countries want to join something that was bigger than themselves, a supranational identity, and that was because all of them had experienced the failure of the nation state, uh, and it it gave rise to ugly nationalism, and why. The British had never really experienced that. However, 1973 was a period where the, this country came as close to a failure of the nation state as I think we've seen for a very long time. What does, it, what does that mean, failure of the nation state? Well, it meant during the winter of 73-74, which is when I arrived uh, from Germany, they had something called the three-day week, which meant the miners were in strike we didn't have enough coal, we couldn't produce enough electricity. Uh, so there was no electricity for four days of the week. So when I arrived here, people would arrange to go and meet their friends on the days when they knew they'd have electricity, where they would get a mm. hot, hot meal. Uh, my, my mother sent me parcels with sugar in it because there was a sugar shortage. 
it the 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 trade unions were in a battle locked with the government mm. uh and that battle almost went on for about eight years uh and ended up with margaret thatcher very brutally settling that that matter but essentially you had a position where the government wasn't in charge of the country so people were for what brief- unions were unions, big companies, or the fight between the, mm. the unions and the big companies. So people were looking for something that was bigger themselves than themselves. Uh, and oh, so, so they felt they needed to look outside of... they. Essentially, our country wasn't... Like, the UK wasn't working in its current state, so let's join something bigger that does appear to be working. Yeah. It just seems like, again, a lot of what we're going to come back to is context, but... Uh, the generation now who are going to be voting for the next however many generations, uh, we're the context was very different when we originally joined the EU. Like, I get annoyed if I can't get food within 10 minutes, 24 hours a day, let alone <laughs> having four days a week of not being able to get anything. So, so you're saying so being part of something bigger has always been an, asp- an aspiration, and that's the reason why we joined the EU. It well, being part of something bigger has always been. Been. Is that a safety in numbers? No, it's kind of, no, no. It, it's a tricky thing because the, the Brits had always been part of something bigger. Actually, the Brits had been the thing which was bigger. Well, that's you know? what I thought. Even yeah. if you go before that, there was a period in the British Empire. If you looked at the map, and it was all pink, you know, uh, India, you name it, the Commonwealth. <laughs> so the the Brits had always been able to talk to the world and be part of the world. Mm. Uh, but there was a brief period where they felt they needed to be locked into something that was politically bigger than themselves. And you know, if you even go back further in history, 300 years ago, when you had genuinely England, Scotland, Wales and Ireland, uh, that's when the British developed an identity which was more than their national identity. Mm. So the concept of Britishness came out of the Act of Union between England and Scotland in the 18th century, mm. uh, 707, uh, so, so being part of something bigger has never been a problem for the Brits uh, but this was a unique point where they thought they needed the help of something else rather than being in charge of it not wanting to be too simplistic but <coughs> the the idea that geographically all those all those countries are interlocked whereas we are an island in the same way that we didn't want Scotland to become its own party and there was a big referendum and they decided to stay in uh is that is that in in any way kind of a similar idea that well we're part of the same island you know you need to remain part of it whereas we're not part of we're literally separated by water that seems like a fairly major advantage and disadvantage but geographically we are separate does that have anything to do with it oh it has a lot to do with it and it's got kind of three things why it's got a lot to do with it uh you know, politics is about geography. Mm. So whenever anybody says, oh, Britain is at the heart of Europe, I go and say, look at the map. It is only at the heart of Europe if we're economically disproportionately more successful than anybody else. Mm. Geographically, we are on the edge of Europe and we are the place where the rest of Europe looks out to the world. So there's geography. Geography also helps us because we don't have a problem with our boundaries, kind of, obvious mm. yeah so if you look at, at germany for example uh, the the notion of being german and the boundaries of a state called germany 
went concurrent until, believe it or not, 1989, after the fall of the Berlin Wall. That was the first time it was absolutely settled that there was something called the German state, a mm. unified German state, and you were German if you lived inside that state. And then the, the third thing, which was very important for the Brits, and it's something they had in common with other seafaring nations, is that their political system was never based on trying to create structures. They always knew that if you're a seafarer, you, can, you can't control the waves. Mm. The waves will do what they want to do. You learn to ride them. So we as politicians at Westminster, uh, our system is adversarial, so it's a yes and a no, and we don't search for an ultimate truth. We simply say, at this given moment, this is the best solution to a given problem. Mm. And that's, again, very different from continental politics, which thinks you, if you only talk about it long enough, you arrive at an answer, which is the right answer. So, so 1970, when do we join the EU again? 73. 1973. So from that point onwards, were there clear benefits to being part of the EU? It was, it was great. We, it, we prospered or trade agreements, all this time. I don't understand any of these things. So what did we benefit from being, or is there, did we? <laughs> yes, no, no, we did. no, no, we did. Uh, uh, but there were a number of things which happened in 1973. Uh, y- you could almost look at from 1973 until something called the Maastricht Treaty in 1994, there was a period where a uh, the British state uh, regained control of its own affairs. Uh, we were focusing on trade uh, for the Labour Party. A very important period because you know Margaret Thatcher, who came into government in 1979, uh, did a number of things which uh, the trade union movement and people who wanted equal pay and the social dimension to the work we actually thought were by far too ruthless. Uh, you had a European Union Commission under a man called Jack Delors who gave us equal pay, uh, equal pay for women, all kinds of things. So you had a period for about 20 years where, or 15 years really, uh, where you could say uh, it kind of steadied the ship. Mm. Uh, the Labour Party became very pro-Europe. Uh, and the Tory Party, which always struggled more with sovereignty, uh, realized from about 1986 onwards when Margaret Thatcher signed something called the Single European Act, which is all about trade, that actually this European Union was not just about trade, it was also about politics and who makes decisions. Mm. And that's when the Tories became deeply uncomfortable with the concept. And how... how <clears throat> okay, so so the UK has a government. Democratically, we vote... How, but we, we as the people vote in a prime minister and then they have a term and they get re-voted in. How does the EU work as a political system? Does, it, I, I, does every country vote in a, um, their own person to, for that country and then that as a collective, they all then have their single, like every country has a vote or do different countries get more votes because of their population or how, how does it work as a, a system then? And this is where it all starts to unravel. Because if you wanted to state a, a, have a state called the Federal Union of Europe, mm. the way you have the United States of America, yeah. you would have to put what the what you call democratic checks and balances. Because, you know, I'm, I'm an MP. What is my role? And I would say I am the mediator between mob rule and tyranny. 
you know, there's the will of the people, uh, but the will of the people <laughs> needs to be mediated. Yeah. Uh, and tyranny is the one which only makes decisions without taking any notice of what the people want. And the way you mediate that is by having political parties, having courts uh, which can either challenge or affirm what you know Parliament's done, and there's some sort of serious structures. Now, the European Union has some of those institutions, but they fail to have the checks and balances. So it has a council of ministers and a commission, okay. which are the closest to a government. So the commissioners, 28 of them now, each country appoints one. So there's 28 countries in the EU? 28 countries at the moment, and they <clears throat> vary in size from Luxembourg to Germany, you know, from the very small to the very big. And it's it's independent of population. You don't get more votes and more people. Uh, you do later on. But in the commission, okay. and that's changed over time, but at the moment in the commission, I have a big or have a small, you get one commissioner. Can you give me an example of a of a law, like an, an, like an idea that starts, I can't think of anything, like a European-wide piece of legislation, legislation that... Isn't there something ridiculous like the power of kettles at the moment or something really stupid? So someone, a country goes, I literally don't understand the system. I don't understand why all the countries would want to make votes, uh, changes that impact their country, why that would affect us. I guess I'm still struggling with the idea of the no, EU. No. But well, l- let me come back to that in a moment. Just okay. let me finish. So you've got the commission, which mm. is one part of a government. Uh, and they're all just appointed by the prime minister. Nobody has a say over this. So uh, David Cameron appointed one of his old mates called Lord Hill. Before that, uh, we appointed one of uh, Tony Blair's old mates called Cathy Ashton. Uh, so you've never heard of them. So there's no there's no people vote to vote in your, your elective? No. Oh. Then you've got the Council of Ministers. Uh, so where depending on the subject you talk about, it's either the Prime Minister or the subject ministers who turn up. And I did this for two years when I was a health minister. So I would go, and my vote was worth more than the vote of the person from Luxembourg because you kind of weight the votes according to population. So when they talk about qualified majority voting, there's an element of size to the weight of your vote, but you give the small ones disproportionate more rights then you give the big ones because you want to be fair. So that's kind of your government bit. Mm. Then you've got a court. uh, But the European Court of Justice, and we can come back to that if you want, uh, unlike our courts, where when they say something which we in Parliament don't like, we can just change the law. You can't do that at a European level. The court is meant to interpret European Union law and further deeper integration. So it actually has a political mandate. And... When you want to ask me about the example, I can talk to you about working time directives, about how that affects it. Okay. And then you've got a European Parliament where we've got direct elections. So, dear listener, hand on heart, <laughs> tell me, can you name your MEP? It's mm, a good question. Can you? New. No, I literally don't know. I do know you You tried to become an MEP. Uh at a time when one MEP would represent seven Westminster constituencies, we've changed the system since then. So you've got regional ones. So they work on a list system. Mm. So you don't even elect them individually anymore. You just tick a box which says 
Labour, Conservative, Lib Dem, and then they divide up. It's the worst of proportional representation you can ever have thought of. So can can you okay, even if you can't name your MEP, come on, just name one MEP. <coughs> I don't know. I don't know. I'm terrible. But No no. Sorry to say this to you. You're typical. Yeah, I am. I am Joe Public, <laughs> aren't I? Well, I think so. So, give me an example. Now, now yeah. let's come back to this. So, so these MEPs, they have massive power mm. over some things because they do negotiations between the Commission and the Council. So, big trade deals like the the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership (TTIP) thing President Obama talked about. I'm not. I I as an MP. I'm not allowed to see the text. What? I will simply be told at the end that this is what they have decided. I'm not even going to vote on it. Who's they? The the European Parliament and the European Union and my Prime Minister. My Prime Minister will come back and say, on behalf of the United Kingdom, we've agreed to this trade deal. And I have to say at that point... Prime Minister, could you just show me the text? Because not only have you never asked me, or you as my voter have never asked me, you have not shown me the text to which you will say, well, but it was so sensitive in terms of commercial negotiations. And one of the things I've been challenging the Prime Minister on that particular TTIP one is it's all about big companies and public services. Mm. Now, the big companies are in Brussels and they lobby, and they lobby, and they lobby. And the European Parliament is almost designed for lobbyists. And I've been saying to David Cameron, you must specifically mention excluding the NHS. Because I don't want big American companies to take you, the British government, to court because you want to run the NHS. And he's refusing to do that. Oh, what, from like what competition laws? It's not fair that the government can run and turn a profit on <clears throat> the yeah. NHS. I mean, we've... The way we run the NHS is is unique. Now, the French, for example, have an exception in TTIP for French films because apparently they're culturally so important that they need to be exempt. So my argument is, well, if French films can be exempt, you're telling me French films are more important than the NHS? Discuss. (laughs) But the European Parliament, which uh, debates all this and lobbyists are there, they will have decision-making power. So they've got big powers but very little accountability. And that's where my problem lies. Mm. It's the lack of democracy. And so you, you keep mentioning TTIP, which is, what, explain what TTIP, because uh, again, it's all about trade, isn't it? And it's movement. So can you give me a really basic example? I still don't, like, why would Ameri- Why does America need to have a trade agreement with the EU? Is it not just a case of, they've got a product, we want to buy it, it costs this much to ship it over, you have to pay taxes, that's how much the unit price is. I don't understand why you need a trade agreement. I, I literally don't. If you can explain that from uh, from the basic again. Well, what am I missing? I feel like I'm. No, no, you're not missing anything. You're right. You are right. That's your starting point. At the moment, when people keep telling you about um, this referendum is all about trade and we're going to suffer, um, just remember at the, at the moment we do not have a trade agreement with the Americans, and. It already is that the Americans are the largest investor in the United Kingdom. 
In, in, in what does that mean? The largest investor, as in, in terms, property and yeah, in terms of just if if you do the adding up, the the millions and billions. Oh, like um, your Apple's, your Google's, your Facebooks, the offices, yeah. the staff, the people who have an international office here. And similarly, we are one of their largest investors, uh, and you know our trade exchange is massive, and that's just the UK level. But I almost need to go back in history a little Please bit, do. if I may. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and then, you may, mother. And then take, you may. <laughs> thank you, Benjamin. Thank you. <laughs> um, because something else happened uh, in in the early 90s, which is already after you were born. Mm. I mean, before that, I was going about things before you were born. Yeah, things were in black and white. Yeah. I know, I know. Uh, and there was... People talk about, you know, globalisation and... Uh, it's one of those words where you say, yeah, you're not there. And you go and say, uh, but what does he mean? Yeah. Essentially what he meant means is they'd be going back to an almost 19th century concept of free flows of goods, money and people. Because this kind of restrictions of tariffs and passports and these things is a very 19th, 20th century concept. You know, people were trading before that and you didn't have things. So, so before I could just sail somewhere, rock up, sell my stuff and then leave. No no passport control, no nothing. And then, and then they put in these rules and regulations, I assume because drugs, people trafficking, all sorts of things. You know, how do you control what's coming in and out of the ports, right? Crime. That's Plus cartels. Cartels. Oh, yeah, know, yeah. Trade restriction. If, 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 if I can restrict your trade and make you pay money, uh, you know, and I make money out of that. You know, the the, the Taliban in Afghanistan. Uh, when people say, "Oh, it's about drug trade," I say, "No, it's about tariffs. If it weren't drugs, it'd be wheat. It'd be something." You know, mm. I'm sitting on this road. You you taking your cartload of whether it's wheat or poppy seed, and I say, "Unless you pay me X, you shall not pass." I've just imposed a tariff on you. Is that as well a little bit because if you've got one ship arriving every week to a port, well, that's fair enough. But if you suddenly start having a thousand ships arriving to this port, the amount of additional capacity and just you just knacker the port. So the port needs to make some money. It taxes you to coming into that port and then they'll just move to another port. So you have to tax. Is that is that kind of how it evolves and stuff? Right? It's people in power making money out of regulating the things which are important to them. Mm. It's simple as that. Okay. So you, you used to have, after, well, after... World War Two, when essentially, because it was a world war, yeah. uh, everybody looked at the structure of the world. So they set up something called the, you know, the World Bank, the Bretton Woods Agreement, all these kind of things. But in the early nineties, we ended up with something called the World Trade Organization, and that was the kind of the first attempt to deal with tariffs on a global basis. Mm. So you could almost say that in terms of flow of services. And that takes me back to something you said earlier, where you said, why do you need any of these deals? Yeah. Well, it's kind of the kind of standards you agree on. So if I want to sell you a kettle with a plug, mm. uh, you know that we've still got three pins. Yeah. And when you go over to the continent, it's got two pins. Mm. But provided we run on the same wattage and voltage, we can deal with adapters. So they're kind of things which you say, can we all agree on doing this? Mm. Uh, so... As I buy your goods, this is what I want. Uh, genetically modified food is another one. You know, we've got rules on that. So there, there's some kind of rules and standards which you impose. Mm. But the WTO was the first attempt to say, let's just deal for the whole world with tariffs and flows of goods. 
and they're kind of set limits. So you're not allowed to have punitive tariffs. So when people say, oh, if you leave the European Union, you know, they're going to impose a 20% tariff on all the British cars. Now, actually, they couldn't. WTO rules would, would forbid that. And that was the kind of the first wave of globalization. And the WTO, in terms of goods, I think got a grip on this. The second big flows is money. Mm. And when all the banks and everything crashed in 2008, what it showed us is that nobody had a handle on how private capital flows. You know, mm. When the Queen went to the London Stock Exchange and said, why did nobody see it coming? Uh, they kind of a few months later got back and said, well, Your Majesty, we all saw bits of it coming, but we weren't quite able to link it all together to realize that this would be an enormous car crash. We were like, well, we were all making quite a lot of money and I didn't want that to stop. It looked so, okay, yeah, you, know? I, you, know, I, I, you know? I like having lots of money. <laughs> so, so, so with money, we've seen that, you know, the European Union was useless. Mm. It played no role in this other than probably even making things worse. And then the third element of globalization, so you've had goods, you have money, and what's the third element? It's people. Mm. And, you know, whenever you listen to this podcast, it may be that the, 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 the news headlines are full again about what's happening on the borders of the European mm. Union because it comes and goes. But essentially, we are having the biggest movement of people uh, we have seen since 1945. And whether it comes from war-torn Syria or whether it comes from North Africa or whether it still comes from Afghanistan – People who live in areas which either have war or bad economics mm. want to move to mainland Europe. And because big chunks of the European Union have created something which they call the Schengen area, where once you're inside, you no longer need a passport. You no longer mm. need to, not only do you not need a passport, but nobody can stop you. It becomes an enormous attraction because your aim is just to break that one border. Yeah. So if you're in Libya, all you need to do Get to Malta. Once you're in Malta, you're in Schengen. You can travel on a train all the way to Sweden and nobody's going to stop you. And that provided a, a it was like a magnet. And the European Union was singularly incapable to deal with movement of people as well. Now, we in the UK, because we're in Ireland, we always said in 94 when this treaty called Maastricht was ratified, there were two things which we weren't going to do. We weren't going to join the single currency and we're not going to join Schengen. And you could pretend that this European Union of two kinds of sets of rules mm. was working. But of course, the minute they actually introduced the euro, that no longer worked. Because for the euro to work, you do need to have a country called Europe. Mm. So they need one. And in a sense, you could argue that this referendum is a continuation since 1994, where we'd opted out and the logical conclusion of that opt-out now, because they can neither control the border, nor can they have the single currency under the single structure. Mm. We, we, we signaled our exit 20 years ago. So, because there's two things I want to talk about. One is why we didn't join the euro and then uh but first i was just curious um if you ignore as a financial institution what what's kind of the uk's power 
in comparison to France and Germany? Like, uh, like financially, are we at the same level or, or bigger? Like, if you ignore the size of the country and the amount of people and literally just went on our economic status, you know, our financial status is like a Hong Kong, New York, this, are there... Are we seen as a big hitter? If if we leave, are we suddenly seen as a kind of lesser to that, or are we seen as more appealing? Like how, like if you, from a financial point, if you only from a like, just flow of money. Yeah, yeah. I once remember talking to a guy who was running the the, the German equivalent of the uh, Confederation of British Industry, and I said. What is it the Brits can do which the Germans can't? Mm. And he said, "Oh, you can talk to the world in a way which we can't." And it's a historic confidence, mm. and it goes back to the empire. Uh, it's a linguistic confidence. I mean, just think about it. English is the global language. Now, yeah. in a hundred years' time, when your son. Uh, <laughs> Max will be talking to uh, someone discussing this. Uh, I think the English which is spoken across the world will be a different English. And mm. English English, English will be a, a dialect of the global English. Uh, however, today, in 2016, we have uh, historic connections across the whole world. We are a major player both in the Commonwealth, in the United Nations, uh, every trade you you want to think of uh, because of the way we approach things we are terribly pragmatic mm. we don't get too hung up about ideology we just say does it work uh, and that kind of helps I, I give you one example when I first came to the uh, in- intelligence security committee it's a it's it's a committee that only sits in private and small number of MPs and a couple of people from the House of Lords. And we oversee the intelligence security services, MFI, MSX, GCHQ. It's an enormous privilege to be on that. And I looked at a map of how the whole internet connections and the flows of communications across the world mm. work. And you looked at this map and it's a bit like a motorway network, which just kept going through the United Kingdom. It was really weird that all these lines kept going through this small offshore mm-hmm. island. Uh, yeah. And I said, why? And they said, well, two things. One was the old-fashioned telephone system during the Victorian times when we still had an empire. And that combined with the liberalization of the telecoms market in the 1980s mm. suddenly meant that we had we had the historic ro- motorways and we opened up the motorways before everybody else did to the rest of the world. Yeah. And therefore, we became the great innovators. So, you know, you live in London. You you go around London. You know this is where the world meets. Yeah, well, exactly, yeah. My, my constituency is in Birmingham. Uh, I go through my constituency. It's where the world meets. I have some schools where some of the children may have been to India and Pakistan five times but may have never been to the city center before. <laughs> and that is the great outward lookingness, mm. which the British have always had. It's ability to, to embrace and accommodate people from outside. And that gets me to, 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 to the next subject, which is really difficult. And that's immigration. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. Because, you know, in this whole debate uh, about the referendum, 
you know, the, the thing which we talk about is vote, leave and take control. Yeah. And the two elements, which are the elements of taking control, is one about the amount of money we spend. So we send £350 million a week to Brussels. And What's I would, that for? That's, it's, it's, part it's being of, part of the EU. It's it? part of our... Yeah, it's, it's part of being the EU. So we've always paid in more than we get out. Now, some of that money comes back to us in terms of research grants, regional development grants. But at the end of the day, for every two pounds we send there, only one pound comes back. And the one pound comes back with strict rules. It's a bit like, remember the days when you pocket money? Mm, yeah, oh, the good old days. Indeed. So mm. it's a bit like, you know, if, if I'd given you the pocket money by saying, uh, and here's your pocket money, and this is what you go spend it on. I would have given you a little tax, and you would you would have turned around to me and said, "Is that your idea of pocket money?" Mm-hmm. You know, you've just told me what I need to spend it on. See, I'm no investment specialist, but I would say that giving two pounds and getting one pound back seems like a pretty crappy deal. And it has been like that ever since day one. I was, I was watching a film the other day, which had the history of the European Union, and there was this footage of Margaret Thatcher in 1986 and I have I confess I felt slightly embarrassed because I've been spending the week going around saying for every two pounds we spend we only get one pound back and there was Margaret Thatcher saying for every two pounds we send to Brussels we only get one pound back (laughs) and I thought so it's been like this for if it was 1986 you can work out how long that is because it's for as long as you've been alive hundreds and hundreds of years ago (laughs) yeah uh, and so that's one thing. And the second thing is that it's, you know, immigration is not racist. Now, there are some people who, when they talk about immigration, have a racist agenda. Mm. And I really do deplore that. I think that's just wrong. Mm. However, there's a question about immigration in terms of sheer numbers. Mm. Well, that's the hard thing, isn't it? There's yeah. so many more people that want to, understandably, UK is an amazing place to live. Of course, you want to get people here. So you have to have a system which decides who can come in and who can't. Now, to me, it, you have to look at your historic roots and your historic responsibilities. Mm. So if you have the moment, we've got every year 250,000 people extra coming in. So that means in four years, the size of Birmingham, mm. twice the size of Worcester, even more than twice the size of Worcester. You, you know there's a problem because it means... Uh, our hospitals, which are currently not coping, aren't going to be able to cope. Mm. Our schools, you know, in the West Midlands, we need some, almost 50,000 extra primary school places. Yeah. So you need to know who can come in. And that's where the historic responsibilities come in. You know, in, in, in the United Kingdom, we've always had different rules, special rules for the Irish. So if you're Irish, you can vote here. Uh and have been able to do for a long time. You can cross the borders easier. If you're a Commonwealth citizen, if you're ordinarily resident here, you can vote here. And some some of my Indian and Pakistani uh, constituents find it really difficult. They say, look, we fought for the British in World War II. We've been here for second, third generation. I have a problem bringing my grandparents in for a wedding. Mm. And yet, if I'm from Romania and Bulgaria, I can just come in. I have no restrictions. And yeah. I just think, again, you know, I as your MP ought to be able to be asked, what are the rules you've just drawn up? 
So, so currently, as a member of the EU, are our immigration laws more relaxed than what we're propo- proposing if we leave the EU, or have we not proposed anything for the if we left the EU? I think what we're saying is that what we do know is that because there is, uh, you know, five hundred million people who have got a right to be here, and when people say, well, you've got control of our borders, that just means we can ask them for a passport. Mm. That's not the same as saying you can come in. Uh, because there's so many people who can just come in without us having a say, we have become disproportionately tougher on countries who I think have got a historic right to expect mm. that we are more accommodating. And what you have if we, say, leave on the 23rd of June is that A, we will take greater control about the money which we currently send at Brussels, but we also will have an immigration policy which we will co- we will decide and you will be able to tell me whether you thought I got it right or wrong. And if you think I've got it wrong, you just don't vote for me at the next general election, you kick me out. Mm. So that's an interesting point, which we will come back to again, <coughs> that uh, the whole democratic accountability, mm. I guess. But I... What I wanted, because I guess a lot of people, the reason why you've kind of risen to the front of the whole Brexit campaign is that uh, what kind of qualifies you to talk about it more than most, or I feel, is is that you you worked to f- actually form the document for us to join the EU, but then that, well, explain that part because so that's you've seen the inner working. So like this is why maybe I've explained it very badly. You explain it in much more detail. You know what I mean? I, I know I'm old, but I'm not that old. <laughs> not the original one. But I no, wasn't in around in 1957. No, 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 actually, no. true. I was around in 1957, but I was two years old. No, but uh, in the 90s, you worked on what? What did you work on? No, what what happened is, and because the European Union has become increasingly aware that it was kind of out of touch with its citizens. Mm. So they thought, right, uh, let's draw up a constitution, a rule book which explains how the European Union works. And so in 2002, I went over to Brussels as uh, a member of a small British delegation and we were called something, the Convention on the Future of Europe. Mm. Our job was to to draw up something to bring the people closer. And we were under a guy called Giscard d'Estaing, and he came up with this brilliant idea that we needed a constitution, which is fine. So every country would feed into a central constitution. Okay. Uh, and every country would send uh, two MPs, plus what they're called alternates, so if you, know, if you couldn't make it, someone was there, uh, one minister, and the commission was there and representative of the European Parliament. And then it had something called the Presidium, which was a small body of 13 people. And they were kind of would set their gender, they would do the draft, they were kind of the, the steering committee. And I was a member of that Presidium, of those 13 people. And how were you chosen? How were you selected for that? Well, uh, I was there not as a representative of the British government. I was there as one of three representatives of national parliaments and it was kind of the the national parliaments sort of kept meeting until they finally agreed it's a bit like selecting a pope you know until the white smoke appears you don't agree on anything well because of your german background i think so and because it was labor is one under you know tony blair was seen terribly pro-european and they thought uh you know they finally had a brit uh, who was very pro-european 
which I was mm. until the last 72 hours. But why, why, why were you up until that point? Then? Well, because you see, having naively, re- a lot of people would be thinking, well, no, they use, you know, their, their thing, I guess their mindset is where you were before then, right? Like until you mm. know what, 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 yeah, what changed in the 72 hours? I, like, well, I think I, I can be terribly agnostic because I can see the British model and I could see what the federal state's like. Now, I know in, in the British context, the word federal is a truly F word. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I grew up in a federal state, Federal Republic of Germany, uh, but I know what it requires for a federal state to work to still be democratic. What's a federal state? Uh, it means that various components come together. So in, 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 in Germany, it's it's Bavaria, it's Baden-Württemberg, it's Hesse, it's Hamburg. It's So it's it's a bit like the European Union. If you were a government and you make it a federal unit, so you've got various units which have an So Germany's a federation still? Like, yeah, okay. still a federation. And, and even Bavaria itself is a federation of... Uh, nine different units. So Germany is a federation of federations. Yeah, oh, so it's it's wow. a very continental <coughs> thing. And is that common know, in in Europe then? Very common. Um, Canada is a federal state. Uh, the United States of America is a federal state. Mm, okay. uh, the the United Kingdom is a union, and we can we need to talk about that on the twenty fourth of June as a nation. What happens to that union? Mm. Because we do have a problem with England. But you know, let's return to that in a different time. <laughs> uh, so. I thought we had something in that constitution which made things more accountable. And we negotiated the rows of parliaments, all those kind of things. And then when we drew up the final document, the final few hours, suddenly all the big governments came in, all the vested interests came in, things got changed. And I always compare it to a polymer with memory. You know, a bit of plastic which you bend and you think, I've, I, I've shaped it. And he turned around and he looked back and he was back to where it was before. And this is when I got back and said, mm. the one thing they've never thought about was the people. The one thing they've never respected were the voters. And that to me is the essence of democracy. Mm. The beauty of democracy is that every four to five years, 70 or thousand people in Birmingham person get a piece of paper, they put a cross next to it, and the person who's got more crosses next to their name will be their member of parliament and the party which has got more MPs will form the government and if the people in five years time said you know what we got that wrong they kick us out mm. and you just can't do that in the European Union so are you, so <clears throat> so if for example if the European Union became the European states United States of Europe and it had an elected president and we were one of those elected states and then we could vote for a president would that change your opinion? Is that something that would make the euro work? Or do you feel like it's just, I mean, that's obviously a hypothetical question. It couldn't happen. But in, in principle, is that more democratically accountable? Or is that, is, does it just not work because of the, the, again, geographically, it just doesn't stack up. I mean, is, is that what, is that in a solution or is it, I don't know. No, no, you're, you're struggling with something which is at the essence of the struggle. Um, why did the United States of America work? Mm. Uh, you know, it started with the original colonies. Uh, it became the big melting pot. Uh, you know, Statue of Liberty, bring me your poor, your dispossessed, your refugees. Uh, it, you know, started in the late 18th century. It had a big civil war in the 19th century between the North and the South. 
it had a single currency, the dollar, which didn't become an effective currency until the 1920s, 30s, when they created a central bank and you had the railways, which allowed people to move when there were, was unemployment. Uh, and that was possible. Now, if you try to do that in the European Union, the reason why in the current size it is, it won't work is because we've got too much history. So for the Americans, you move there and they close their eyes and say, I am an American. Mm. Yeah? This is my flag. <clears throat> uh, I can be in, in the UK, I can be an MP for Birmingham, born in, near Munich, and I can say, I'm British. I'm a member of parliament at the Westminster Parliament. Do you think we can have a demos, i.e. a people who, when they close their eyes, say we, which says the student in Athens says, I, I will pay more taxes in order to help the student in Latvia? I just think there's too much history. Mm. So, And history that, I guess, has developed and grown at totally different timescales, right? Yeah. So. So, so that history of what means it to be us, mm. uh, you know, Birmingham, the vast majority of people who live in Birmingham weren't born in Birmingham, but we have become Brummies. Mm. Now, this attempt to create the European, which is what they thought they could do, mm. I think is now the reason why we have the rise of the really nasty nationalism in parts of the European Union, you know. Austrian elections, Hungarian elections, all those kind of things, it's because we have not achieved a supranational identity that people reach for something that has some problems. Oh, so you think instead of being set part of something bigger, you're actually diluting the very thing that they're part of, and that's why... Yeah, yeah. So, because... So we're kind of... We've got about 20 minutes left, so I wanted to kind of ask a, a few more detailed questions. Hmm. Ten. 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 Okay, no, ten. You're pushing ten. it, sunshine. So, <laughs> so for you, for, so for trade agreements, I want to go back to trade yeah. agreements. That's the thing. So I obviously in architecture practice, we do a lot of, a huge amount of our work, not just in Europe, but all around the world. And one of the questions is always, well, uh, like unknowns are going to happen if we leave the EU. And that would slow a lot of publicly funded things. Like some of the people at work, the wives work in advertising and advertising budgets have just stopped because... No one knows what's going to happen after, like after the referendum. So you're saying you have to break a few eggs to make an omelet. But the idea is that, yeah, sure, it's a bit unknown for a bit, but it'll work itself out very quickly. Or is that something you like? Just you guys will deal with it. You're the best of the best. <laughs> Businesses will just make money some slightly different way. Guys, it's not the end of the world. Now I'm talking mother to son. Okay some really bad news for you. Okay. And that is, none of us know what's around the corner. What? <laughs> oh God. <laughs> I know, it's shocking. You said everything would be fine. <laughs> uh, there's a there's a, a Danish philosopher called Kierkegaard who some, once said something very important. I remember that. He said, life is lived forwards, but understood backwards. Mm. So we get up in the morning and I don't know what it's like with you, but even my diary for the day. The one thing I know about my diary is that, you know, I leave at eight in the morning. By the time I get home at 10 or 11 and I look back on that day, on my day, at least one thing which will have happened, I had not anticipated. Mm. It's always, it, you know, there's this notion that there's certainty. Forget it. 
Uh, the second thing is, in, in terms of your investment uh, decisions, there is always a moment of democratic decision-making which makes business slightly nervous. Business gets nervous during a general election when they can't anticipate the outcome. Mm. Um, you know, if, if they think it's in the back, it's business as usual. Uh, if, if they're not sure who's going to win the next election, they kind of hold back. Uh, because what business wants is to know what the rules are. And then it almost doesn't matter what the rules are. They just want to, work, they just want to know what they are. Mm. So the uncertainty is a not knowing what's next. Uh, now, when the, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, when David Cameron and George Osborne uh, kind of now tell us uh, this is hellstone, you know, it's hellfire and brimstone, this is the end of the world, I can't occasionally pause and say, hold on, guys, you did not have to call this referendum. You chose to have it. Until Christmas, you were all saying, well, let, let the people have their say. Ah, of course we'd be perfectly right outside. It's interesting that all those quotes have disappeared off the government websites. Really? And I think <coughs> some of your podcasters out there, they ought to start a thing called In Search of Winston Smith. You know, remember the guy in 1984 who, who was sent out to erase memory? I think there's a bit of this going on. <laughs> uh, so, yes, the democratic processes create temporary uncertainties. Mm. Um, but in terms of your international investors, uh, I have this sense that I've heard this all before when there was a question of whether we should join the euro, they kept saying, if we join the euro, international investment will stop, all these, you know, nobody will come in. Well, all I know is that none of these things happened. So if I look into the future, and what do I really know about the future? The th one thing I do know is that you currently have a single currency which is not working. Mm. Uh, there's something called the five presidents plan, and that just gives you an indication why it's so difficult to understand the European Union. They do have five presidents, and I won't bore you with who they are. Okay. But those five Thank have you. written a plan uh, of what the deeper political integration will require to make the euro an effective currency. And it does mean the creation of a state called Europe. Mm. And from the United Kingdom's point of view, given that we're not going to join this, I think the European Union has a simple choice. It either is going to change by design, fundamentally change, and that requires us to leave. Uh, we start on the 24th of June, a, a process which will be several years. You know, nothing will change on the 24th, 25th, 26th, 27th. It's a start of a process by which we unravel these relationships where the euro countries will do deeper political integration because if they don't, their unemployment won't be solved. They have a deep problem. We gently move the other way and it will be managed. Or if we don't do that, we're going to wait until things become catastrophic and you have an implosion and it will be an unmanaged change. Ever which way, mm. I think Britain is better off by managing that process and voting leave now and you have that disentangling in an ordered fashion. So... Down to my last five minutes, so I have a good question to end on. <clears throat> um, 
your question will be good, but I can't guarantee the, the answer will be any good. <sighs> Why didn't I get more pocket money? No, um, <laughs> <coughs> no I'm not bitter did about you, that anymore. Did you get pocket money? Yeah, not enough. Not enough. Did I? God. God, God you mean I handed over real cash? <coughs> Sometimes. Something um, so I didn't what, raid your piggy bank. I, as if I had a piggy bank. <laughs> as if it ever stayed in my pocket long enough. <laughs> so what, what, so what's, what's wrong with staying in the EU then? If, if after the 24th, what, what happens if we stay in? Like, what would, would the next things be that we would, we would have deeper connections at governmental level? We, is, things will change from they are now, or are we just continuing to stay on at a level we are now? Or are you saying that, is this why the referendum got called in the first place? Are, are we, is something about to change in the EU that things become much more interconnected? You know, you keep pretending that you don't understand politics, but by by the nature of your last question, you've actually gone to the heart of one of the things which I should have mentioned earlier and I'd forgotten. So thank you. You're welcome. Because... It's not my first pocket. (laughs) More pocket money. (laughs) Uh, Because staying put is not the same as keeping the status quo. Mm. Um, If we say we stay, the one thing which we do know is that the euro countries will have deeper integration. We know that we will be in the minority. We will increasingly be in the minority because simple arithmetic tells you that currently 28 countries, only two have a proper opt-out. It's us and Denmark. And, you know, if, if there's deeper integration, the Danes will be bullied into joining. So it's almost just us. So, it, you know, if it's a permanent 27 to 1, who's going to win? Mm. It's a 27, isn't it? So we, the, you're going to have that block increasingly making decisions in their interest and not in ours. And of course, whilst the, this application by Turkey to join, uh, people keep saying, oh, it's, it's a long way off. However, we are currently negotiating a visa-free travel for Turkey. So you will suddenly have a country which has got a population larger than Germany. So it will be the largest country in the European Union you add that to free movement Mm. so what we know is the political pressure will be decisions made not in our interest and if we worry about control of our borders and with that I mean actually saying who can come in Mm. not just checking the passport that will just get pressure will increase all the time so, oh, so there'll be a free because we're part of the well, the way you said the current borders. Well, but, well so we're not part of Schengen, but it, it just means that in Schengen we can ask for passports, yeah. but we can't stop people from coming in. Oh, so yeah, I've got a passport. Let me into country. Yeah. Whereas you know, if you've got if you control of your borders, you can say, "Show me your passport," and I tell you who can come in. So when I first came, I mean, there are two things. A little history lesson, and I'll show it to you. If, you, if you're really nice, I will show you my old passport. Okay. Uh, when I came in in, in 1974, January 74. Uh, for the first five years, uh, every time I moved, I had to register with the police. I had to show that... Well, I when was you a- came here, you had to register with the police every time you moved? Yeah. So I got a little maker. piece of paper. Clocked yep. you a mile off, didn't they? Uh, I, had to, I had to have a job. If, if I hadn't had a job, I would have had to go. And yep. what's more, until the late 70s, you weren't allowed to take more than... I forget now, I think it was £30 in foreign currency. So I've got in my passport a stamp which said how much money I changed to take foreign currency out. So these kind of controls always say, you know, the nation state and the people who elect make decisions. And that's all gone. And the, the, the one thing I want to say to 
anybody sort of your age who, who's never grown on anything else. This is actually about democracy. This is about you deciding who makes the decisions, not just on those 350 million pounds a week which goes to Brussels, not just who comes in on your borders, but who governs you. And when they say to you, oh, isn't the European Union fantastic? Uh, cheaper roaming charges and cheaper holiday flights. <laughs> I just want to say to you, are you really telling me you're selling your democratic rights for cheaper roaming charges and cheaper flights, which are probably going to be just as cheap outside the European Union than they're now? Fair enough. That's a very, that's a very good point. Well, okay, I'm going to end on that. But uh, I feel this is, uh, I would like to chat more, not now, obviously, but maybe another time, because you're doing it, we'll end on what you're doing next. You're doing a big talk. You like to say? Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. go on then. I'm going to go to Make. Yeah, and somewhere slightly bigger than Make. Well, we're not going to talk about that yet. Okay, They've fine. got to wait for that. Okay, fine, fine, fine. But they may have to watch the television programs. Okay. You may see more of me. Big things are happening. But obviously at Make, that's the biggest one. Of course, I mean, <laughs> doesn't get much. I mean, there's anything bigger. <laughs> come on. And uh, so that's that's. I'm next Ben's mum. Yeah, exactly. Come on, come on. I'm famous. People, people, people know me. <laughs> okay, well, thank you so much for doing that. That was really helpful. Thank you. Pleasure. Well, there you go. That was episode 21 of the Create More podcast with Gisela Stewart, all about Brexit. Uh, yeah, do you know what? I've uh, I've been thinking lots about how to end this podcast. I um. I have been talking to lots of people about it and everyone has like what what seem to be very strong opinions, uh, some of which agree, some of which disagree. Uh, but everyone seems, uh, yeah, just I, um, I kind of naively just tell people what I think and then kind of uh, wish that I'd probably not been quite as open and honest because people... People who believe incredibly strongly about how they feel uh, will want to try and kind of uh, reverse your decision. Um, so I've, and do you know what? And in that process, I've had lots of people talk to me about um, how kind of, uh, well, if you look at it from Mick's point of view, you know, we, we are a big company. We do a lot of work in Europe. Um, the kind of, uncertainty of not being in the EU would, you know, would, would obviously have short-term effects on kind of on make and some of the mega projects that we're doing, I would imagine are just as kind of exposed to those things as every other business is. Um, so on the one hand, I can kind of see why, you know, staying in, why would you mess with a system that maybe isn't perfect, but is doing all right. <laughs> um, and, you know, we're out of a recession. The economy seems to be doing fairly well. Uh, why uh, why shake that tree when we don't need to? Um, on the other hand, you know, uh, well, as I hope you can probably hear from the podcast, kind of when I'm presenting the other side about, like, you know, democratic freedoms and having the right to vote, that also makes a lot of sense to me. Um, th- also, um, there's obviously bits in the podcast that I don't know much about, Um a uh, lot, you know, lots of things that I want to know more about. And um, I feel that weirdly I've been given a maths answer without the workings out behind it. So 
uh, or if you were to go to another country and they asked, do you speak the language? And you say in perfect response, uh, I can only say one sentence. And they're like, oh, so you can speak this language. And you go, no, no, I only learned that one sentence. And then you can't talk past that. Like, I feel, you know, I feel like my mum has given me some, you know, a very really good insight into like why she feels the way she feels and I obviously you know trust my mum that's just that's obviously how this relationship and how I feel about kind of her involvement in this so um a large part of what I've been discussing with people is um essentially like who does your trust lie with you know who do you feel has the best intentions uh, who do you trust who kind of go ahead with those intentions? And for a lot of people, um, a f- well, a few people I've spoken to, they believe that uh, they, you know, whilst we may not have any democratic or may, um, that's probably wrong, while we may relinquish some democratic control over our kind of involvement in the EU, um, they just kind of trust that to be all right as like a group of people. Um, as opposed to keeping that kind of, I mean, that's another thing I don't fully understand. Like, do do we then get to vote on everything ourselves internally, or does the Conservative government or whoever the political power is at that point, like, is it if it was Labour or or Conservative, do, do we vote? <clears throat> do they then vote for these laws? And if that is the case, if if I've, I mean, if I've understood that right, I'm, I might be completely wrong, and I'm pretty sure someone will tell me. But if that is the case, do you trust our Conservative government or an elected set of officials from all of our governments, uh, from sorry, from each party, to be put forward to then make the decisions on the country's behalf on how they're involved in the EU or how we do trade agreements? Um, and. I, I don't know this this is my understanding of it was that some people believe that actually that this kind of collective of the eu is something they trust in more than than the kind of current political system here so so i guess uh if you were going to push me for a decision i would say that whilst i didn't understand everything that we just spoke about in detail and I couldn't you know stand up and argue for any of those cases um I inherently trust the person that was just talking to me to kind of make the best decisions for for something that she believes in and and if you feel the same way then my assumption is that that's the way you'll vote but if you don't and that's totally understandable um and there's obviously tons and tons more reasons I guess the reason I was worried about putting my opinion on the end of a podcast um was I'm not able to kind of if I've said something wrong which I probably have to kind of defend my position or to at least have an open conversation with someone like that's genuinely how I feel like I'm not championing for you know for the Brexit but um I'm just I'm still as curious to hear other people's responses so I'm really excited about this talk on Thursday um uh, you know, and also just, you know, proud to see my mum up there doing something she genuinely believes in. But, I, you know, I guess it all boils down for me, for, for my personal opinion. Um, it's, you know, it. I don't know whose information to trust more than the other ones. I mean, I got a pamphlet through the door saying I would, um, my Ryanair flights would be more expensive if we left the EU. And I was like, is that... That doesn't seem like a particularly important decision 
to base being in the Ute on. Um, but then I realized they were just going for the floating decision, which is fine. Um, so yeah, I guess because I trust my mum to make the best decision and because of her experience and seeing both sides of everything, that's naturally the way I'm leaning. But that's a very simple way to look at a very, very complicated problem. <clears throat> and I totally understand that other people will want to kind of, you know, other people have their own opinions and that's absolutely fine. And I just wanted to give you guys a kind of an inside story or inside view on what it's like. So the next one will be more about how the campaign is going and what it's like to be, you know, to, to be in such a prominent position all of a sudden. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy that. It should be in the next two or three weeks, uh, well before the referendum. So, um, yeah, subscribe if you want to hear the next one or, uh, or tweet me if I've got something spectacular wrong and you think I'm an idiot. Um, or genuinely, actually, um, there's a really interesting Brexit video um, for, for Vote Leave, the video. It's like a three-minute, really cool animated video, and it's quite conclusive. And I just wanted to know <clears throat> if there was, like, I'm not saying I need bite-sized information, but it would be if someone could email me or send me a link to some kind of, I don't know, like a, more of an overview of the Bremain side, um, which I'll go and look into anyway, but um, this is obviously a one based on Brexit. So uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed it. Subscribe and thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.